All right. Hi, everybody. It's our CFB Talk 161. My name's Bob Akhairi. We do these every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. A chance to talk whatever you're thinking in college football. We've had a good week. Interesting stuff to discuss. We've got another week, obviously, coming up here. Lots of news. We're midway through the season thereabouts. We've actually, we're at, got our first Tuesday football of the season. So as we fire this up, I just wanted to go over some scores. There's the exciting games, actually. Uh, the only one that seems to be running away is Middle Tennessee. Seems to have quite a lead on Louisiana Tech right now in some Conference USA action. But the other two games are more interesting, and they have more stakes. Liberty, which is undefeated, and their schedule's so weak, they're going to probably have to stay undefeated at the end of the season to probably even get ranked. But they're playing Jacksonville State. They Jacksonville State, they're both in Conference USA. They're both 3-0 and in Conference USA. Jack State can't play in any bowl games, can't play for a title. They can just play for the best record possible, and they're playing pretty tight right now. So that's an exciting one to see. And then, of course, Coastal Carolina is at App State. That game is sold out on a Tuesday, and they are tied up, and that is going to be a fun game there. App State just can't play games that aren't exciting, it seems. That's, that's you know, win or lose, it's going to be close, and they're going to make it an adventure for you, especially out there in Boone. So we're going to fire this up. Let's go ahead and see here. I just wanted to mention a couple of quick kind of humorous notes before we get started here. Shotgun Spratling, who writes for the Peristyle, a USC site, noticed when he was kind of reviewing the USC triple overtime squeaker that shouldn't have been a squeaker versus Arizona, that USC got caught twice with only 10 men on the field in the fourth quarter. Although they, one of them they did call a timeout and fix, and the other one the play went forward. This is, of course, a game where Arizona put it all on the field. Uh, a couple of odd decisions that might have won the game for Arizona or at least ended the game sooner. Jed Fish, the head coach of Arizona, some people have criticized the fact that he didn't go for two in the first overtime after he scored the second touchdown because USC went, scored a touchdown, kicked the PAT. Coach Fish decided to also just kick a PAT and not go for two. But the more awkward one is he apparently forgot the new overtime rules because in the second overtime, you have to go for two. And he marched his field goal from his kicking team onto the field. And then they had to call a timeout to, to switch the play because he realized he actually couldn't kick a uh, kick an extra point although it would have been funny if somebody had managed to although i think of course that got overshadowed by what happened at miami we'll well i'm sure some of you'll want to talk about that as well the one amusing comment i read about the whole usc apparently also having 10 men on the field was of course this upcoming week usc and notre dame are playing now they've both had 10 men maybe it's going to be a 10 on 10 game who knows another kind of interesting note you know, it was interesting to see James Franklin. There was a, a tweet about his presser. He was asked about scheduling weak non-conference opponents. Penn State hosts UMass this weekend. And I think he was taking a side. Now, there have been some interpretations. I think the general concept is this is a slight at Michigan, or at least a reference to Michigan. Slight might be strong because he can't point fingers. There's a team. This is, this is again, this is James Franklin, Penn State's head coach. There's a team in this conference that's buying out a ton of co game contracts to go in another direction. And he added that you got to go do, you got to do whatever you possibly can to give yourself a chance to be undefeated. And I, I somewhat sympathize with that. You know, uh, I think some of the fans, especially those from other programs, especially SEC, you know, if you're in a power conference, the number of losses in the column seems to matter tenfold more than strength of schedule. The hope, and, and as others have said, that perhaps this expanded playoff will reduce that necess necessity to kind of 
go as close to undefeated as possible. Maybe some stronger matchups will form. We'll have to see. Probably my favorite comment on this is people decided to parse out the term. There's a team like the B.A. Baracus A team. So that 1972 crack commando unit um, was, of course, sent to a military prison for a crime they didn't commit. One last note. And again, I see a couple of folks have, have queued up to be in and I'll get to Ben, John and James. You know, I was looking at the TV ratings, Oklahoma, Texas, unsurprisingly, the highest rated game of the week with 7.3 million viewers. I have to say Colorado is not in the top 10 because, as some of you may know, their game with Arizona State was, I don't know how you call it, hidden, classified on the Pac-12 network. It was fun to go on Twitter in about the 30 minutes before that game kicked off and see all the people that were frantically trying to figure out how on earth they see the Pac-12 network. And in short order, they figured out why the Pac-12 was imploding uh, this previous season. And, you know, to an extent, one other note, just kind of building off of this, all TV, all college football has, um, ratings have gone up substantially this season. And that, I think, is wonderful. I think some people have wondered what it is. Is it because people have more free time? Is it because there's something about college football? I wonder, you know, and one argument I've heard is, is it a side effect of this whole Deion Sanders bringing non-college football fans just to see the show? And then they're kind of like, hey, college football is actually really fun. This is I did not realize how wacky these games are. I did not realize the, the, the style of play varies so much and, and people make mistakes, but they're, gosh, entertaining mistakes. And maybe that's that's also causing this increase. But both the NFL and college football have seen boosts in viewership. So it's wonderful to see that every time they say college football is going to die off because of some rule change, um, NIL or or the portal, you know, people just love the sport and it's wonderful. And we celebrate that. So let's see. I want to get to some folks who want to talk. Thank you for your patience, Ben. I'm going to go ahead and let you up. I try to let people up one at a time so that, again, it doesn't uh, if you're on hold too long, sometimes I get speaker issues and I can't hear you. But What's up, Ben? Hey, all right. I uh, got a couple things here. Uh, first is going to be, and if there's any Texas fans here, you can answer this question for me. Uh, I've seen in the past couple of years, I think that there is a legitimate like softness problem at the university. I think your audio kind of faded out on me there for a second. I don't know if something was going on with the phone, but uh, um, it's, I just heard softness. Um, I'm sure once you get a chance to unmute again, we'll, uh, we can hear from you there. I'm going to go ahead and – oh, actually, it looks like I dropped them completely. Might have been a technical difficulty on his side. It sounded like that. Um, I'm going to – I'll let him if he wants to come up and bring that up again. But, John, what's up? It's been a minute. Good to hear from you. What's going on, my man? Hey, Bob. Um, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, you know what? We got college football going on right now. We've got an exciting games. Um, two of the three. That ain't bad. Uh, what's going on with you? Hey, man, I'm, I'm happy to have, you know, Tuesday night sickos football back. That's really, it brings a good joy to my heart to have <laughs> games that probably 98% of the country would never care about if it was on a Saturday. So, you know, love, love to see the small teams uh, battle out. But, um, I'm a little bummed that uh, I'll, I'll never know. I'll never know what that Texas question will be unless he ever comes back up here. Let's go. Let's go bug the rest of the night. A um, couple of small things. Um, I I want to say that um, after I saw your guys' tweet earlier today, I'm a full believer in the BYU or vampires uh, conspiracy theory. Oh, now. I, I was. I'm glad you brought that up because that was <laughs> one of the ones. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get, I'm gonna just hit on this one really funny because sometimes at RCFB 
you know, it's Reddit. People will post kind of wacky things. And usually it's what people fill the offseason with. But today, a BYU fan, um, Kruger Dunning, put up just a really amusing post. And, it, and the thing is, he backed it up with data. So BYU, this is, the, this is the headline. BYU is a vampire team confirmed. Since 2020, BYU is 21 and zero in games without sunlight and 12 and 10 in games with sunlight. And then he kind of goes into this. You know, I, you know, he said, you know, I've seen lots of comments that suggest BYU plays better at night. So I decided to run the numbers. BYU is 21 0 in games that kicked off at or after sunset. In these games, BYU has outscored its opponents by an average of 19 points a game. BYU is 12 and 10 that in games that occurred partially during the day. He noted the quality of opponent doesn't seem to matter. Without sunlight, BYU beat four ranked teams, eight P5s. With sunlight, BYU played two ranked teams and seven P5s, but only won two of these games. And then he said, things get weirder when you look at the games that occur partially at night and partially at day. This is where I was kind of amazed. During the day, I, this guy had a lot of time. I just have to say this. During the day portion of these games, BYU is outscored 82 to 103. And it lost this period by three points on average. During the night portion of these games, BYU outscored their opponents 110-82, so a positive four-point margin. I, I, I love this. I honestly don't have a whole lot more to, to talk about it other than the fact that there's apparently a partial solar eclipse coming up this weekend. And I guess we're going to find out what happens. I mean, as, as um, Oregon fan symbol Danny mentioned, uh, Keaton Slovis is either going to go super Slovis and throw for 300 yards and five touchdowns, or he's going to shrink to the size of a thimble. So something to look out for, um, as we head into that one, John, thank you for bringing up that. That was by far one of the more entertaining things I've read in a while. Oh, I, I, I love that whole read today. Oh, the main thing I wanted to ask about tonight though, um, was a, I know probably got buried in, you know, all, all the uh, headlines, but some of the rule changes the NCAA announced recently, uh, the one I, I think was mo very interesting was, you know, the transition fee for FCS teams. Um, you know, but previously I was not aware of this. The fee was only $5,000 uh, to move up from uh, FCS to FBS. And you can correct me if that's wrong, but I, I could not believe the number was that low. Uh, I knew I, with the NCAA now moved the number to is $5 million if you want to, it's a fee you have to pay to move up to FBS level. Um, do you think there's a reason for this? Is there? Do you think that they're trying to maybe, maybe close that pipeline of teams moving up to the FBS? And if you think so, do you, do you think there's a good reason for that, or should, should that be something that should be, we should be allowing to happen? Or I'm just I'm very confused. No, that's a great point because yeah, that that slipped quietly through, and it's a little strange that they did it because you think of what is the impact that's going to have that kind of a jump because. I know the statement on the, uh, the matter, they said, you know, and I'm quoting the NCAA's official statement, these requirements will directly benefit college athletes competing in D1 sports by requiring investment in scholarship opportunities. Over the past several years, the NCAA has collected data about spending uh, at FBS schools and indicate that these requirements are reasonable and um, uh, achieve attainable by the majority of impacted athletic programs. So I guess this is, and I'm reading this, it's five million, uh, 5 million bucks. And you're right, it was previously $5,000. 
along with scholarship guarantees that are written into the deal. So uh, unsurprisingly, the NCAA isn't going to talk about the $5 million fee. They're going to talk about the fact that, hey, we're going to also force them to do scholarships. Um, it seems like it's they're, they've always been trying. I have to say there's always been a trend of them trying to slow down programs moving to FBS. This isn't new. They had a rule that they added. Um, oh, gosh, it wasn't all that long ago that you had to join a conference if you went to FBA. You didn't need to do that originally. You didn't need to have a conference when you moved from FCS, even when it was D, uh, D1AA up to D1A, now known as FBS. But they added that rule, and then it kind of semi-fell apart because of the Liberty situation. Liberty threw so much money at their program, and until Conference USA finally needed teams in kind of a desperate manner, no one wanted to take Liberty because of kind of the baggage that program has as a university. And so they, they never, I think, outright threatened the NCAA, but they basically said, here's our situation. We've tried to join all these conferences. No one says yes. Financially, we're completely we're, – we're better funded than a good chunk of these G5 programs. We should have a waiver. And I think the NCAA – in that sense, wisely said, okay, you can become an independent. So they even were willing to back off their own rules there. And, and for example, they would have probably easily been able to handle $5 million fee. But it feels about a part of the larger, the larger push by the NCAA to keep programs from abandoning the FCS. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is something that's also coming back from the FCS itself. And I'm sure they did some numbers that they know there's going to be schools happy to pay $5 million to, to get that opportunity but um, it may slow things down for a while. I wasn't surprised to see, because HBCUs have debated about that move. Some of you who really know minor college football history may know that for one year, um, Florida A&M, FAMU moved up to FBS. No one noticed. They had a terrible time, and they immediately moved back down to FCS. So that one Leading moment is the only time we've ever had uh, HBCU, historically black college university, move up to the FBS rank. So th that's going to put, I think, an even slower move on any potential moves, for example, in that group, because that's a, that's still a step for any school. That's still a significant amount of money unless you're already a, a P5 program. But um, it seems to be a part of that longer trend to kind of slow down that move of teams to move up. But that was a great, that, that I, you're right. That got totally lost. I think for a lot of people in the last week. Yeah. I just, my worry is, you know, is I, I understand, you know, you know, the FCS maybe has it, but I think it's $5 million. I mean, Bob, you probably understand why that's why I did that's, that's a huge amount of money for an FCS program. I mean, that's, I mean, just, just, you know, I mean, the amount they get off TV money and, you know, and how much a lot of those programs are, are worth. Yeah. That's, Five million is feels excessive, honestly. Yeah, and it's interesting because it means – and by the way, I just looked at another kind of analysis. So the, the measure calls on FBS schools to offer at least 210 scholarships per year, which would add no less than $6 million. So it's actually more like they're requiring an $11 million kind of front. Five of it's going to whatever, um, I don't know, funding the NCAA, um, and $6 million. I think, though, that number is, is clearly meant to slow people down. I don't think they're, they want a rush of teams suddenly applying. And we're going to have 134 because this is grandfathering in the old the teams that have already applied. Because right now we have 133 teams, Jacksonville State and Sam Houston joined. And then next year, Kennesaw State um, in Georgia, the Owls are going to also be joining. 
Uh, I believe they're just going to park right into Conference USA. And then that means it's unclear who's going to come next because they're going to have to have a team that can that can throw that kind of money, um, which, as you said, is very intimidating for those programs. But, yeah, thank you for that. That was a, that was a good one. And feel free to, to hang out on top um, as we talk. Let's see. I want to get James in because I want to get to everybody, and then we'll get to Mark, and then we'll get to Ski Mask Smurphy. What's up, James? Hey, um, I have a couple of things that I have to say here. First off, I do think that, you know, I was looking through a lot of football teams yesterday in terms of their quarterback depth, and I was realizing something that was very interesting from this standpoint here. You know, Missouri has recruited really well at the quarterback to the point where the backup quarterbacks now are Sam Horn and um, I believe uh, the, uh, the guy from Miami, Jake Garcia, which I think is kind of interesting there in terms of quarterback depth. But also there's a lot of quality quarterbacks on that team there, even if Brady Cook has an injury that sets him back or something like that there. Even though I, 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 it's, it's, it's miraculous in terms of the quarterback depth because for years, up until you know Gary Pinkle retired, Missouri has struggled at that, even when we had Drew Locke, which I find kind of interesting. But, you know, it's just the quality of quarterbacks is very interesting in terms of how successful a football team can go in terms of longevity of years and all that stuff. So I do think that's very interesting. And then I also had to bring something up here. I saw Joe Lenardi's uh, bracketology, and they didn't even include Missouri. So I think Missouri is still going to have a chip on their shoulder when Dennis Gates comes and plays this year because they're being overlooked again like they did last year. And they're going to be one of the biggest surprises in college basketball this year. What do you think? In college basketball? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm going to admit that's that's going way out of my, my particular uh, zone of knowledge, yeah. I will say that. But I have to say, just going back to uh, – I want to just go back to Mizzou's uh, ability to recruit QBs, though. I mean, I think – it's funny how success breeds success in that regard. I think what Eli Drinkwitz is doing over there and with the, the weapons they're recruiting, I mean, we all know how good those wide receivers are. Suddenly you're able to attract, I mean, it's kind of like what, and, and it's not exactly apples to apples only because Oklahoma is, is obviously a little more established program and so is USC, but what Lincoln Riley was able to do, once you get a quarterback looking good, suddenly the other quarterbacks want to come to you. And you're right. And seeing, and I believe, yeah, it was Jake Garcia as the Miami quarterback you were mentioning who also transferred over. Um, yeah, you're right. If, if, and again, I never, I hope no one ever gets injured in this sport, but if something were to happen to, to cook, yeah, he would, there would be a couple of, of very potentially good QBs that could step up in his place. I think it was a little disappointed to see that game with LSU because I thought it seemed like Mizzou was, was rising and LSU was kind of, um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm very curious to see how these two teams, I mean, especially how Mizzou responds to this. That game they've got at Kentucky. Kentucky got, Kentucky woke up Georgia or Georgia woke up with Kentucky. I'm not sure. But the team we saw that, that obliterated Kentucky was Georgia going back to being the Georgia we remember from, I mean, maybe not exactly last season, but the strength we expected. 
I'm but, very curious to see how Mizzou does this yeah. weekend and to see how both those teams respond to those losses. But I will say that following this year, I think the team, when you look at the matchups, the quarterback battle, whoever has the better quarterback typically does win. And this is why you're seeing a team like USC, they're 6-0 and right now. Because they have horrendous defense. I'm, I, I'm here. I, I'm from Los Angeles, but they have horrendous defense. They still have the greatest quarterback that has ever played, you know, ever, and they're still six and zero. And I do think that plays a big part in anything because it doesn't matter how bad your team is playing. If you have a quarterback that just knows how to win then things start to click. And I uh, absolutely. Think- and Caleb Williams is just a, a freak on a whole other level. But at the same time, I would say Stetson Bennett, meanwhile, on the other side, same thing. He just knew how to win. Um, yeah. and, and, and not, no one would ever say he had necessarily that, that, that raw athleticism that, that Caleb Williams has. But yeah, Caleb Williams, I mean, and it's funny, you hear people discuss like where, where they're thinking Heisman voting and, and some are like, you know, he's literally the only reason USC is un- un- undefeated right now. It, the defense ain't doing anything. And even no. when he's having a bad game, he still pulls off plays that win. I still could not believe that he made that winning. Because, I mean, for those who missed the game, they made it to triple overtime. They have to do two-point conversions. Yeah. And USC's play made no sense. And somehow, just by sheer force, Caleb Williams yeah. ran it in. Yeah. And I, I was just stunned. That, that did not make sense. And, <laughs> I mean, USC should have by all if, – if, if he gets injured, they, they're losing. I mean, if, without yeah. Caleb Williams, that's like a 7-5 and five team, uh, well, you know, at best. I, well, I do think that, you know, in a lot of regards that, you know – if you do, if you do kind of look at that, if you look at that game against LSU, Missouri really actually played against probably just as a phenomenal of a quarterback as possible. Oh I yeah, their quarterback kind of played a big role in why Missouri couldn't necessarily get off the football field. Which, you know, if you're playing against a phenomenal quarterback, I mean, just look at last year's game against Tennessee when Tennessee had Hinden, or Hendon Hooker, and that really is, you know, I mean, you kind of compare the two games, and actually Missouri did play a lot better this year than they did last year against a similar team in Tennessee last year like they did against LSU. And LSU and Tennessee are very similar in a lot of ways this year's LSU's team and last year's Tennessee team because of the quarterbacks that they breeded and all that stuff there. So I do think that's a very comparable kind of aspect that I think a lot of people are kind of forgetting is that, you know, Missouri actually, if you look at the statistics, they were outgained by like almost 400 yards last year. This year, they were only outgained by six yards, and they had 527 yards. So I do think in a lot of ways, if you're playing a team like that, you better bring a really good offense that is very dynamic to the football game because I think it's very hard to stop a team like this year's LSU team and last year's Tennessee team unless you bring a dynamic offense to – 
counterpunch the whole their whole entire football team. Yeah, because you're not going to really do very well from that standpoint unless if Jaden Daniels has a complete collapse, which he did against Florida State. But outside of that, he's had a phenomenal year. So he's pretty much done everything that pretty much everybody's expected of him outside of their defense, which is not very good. And I yeah, I agree. And I think uh, Jaden Daniels is, is clearly one of the best quarterbacks. And it, you almost feel bad for him because, you know, they, it seems like if, if the LSU defense was a little stronger, this this would be the team that people were hoping oh, for yeah. before the yeah. season. But, you know, James, really, I just want to thank you so much for your contributions. This is really interesting. And I want to I want to let Mark up as well, because I'm trying to let give folks an opportunity who want to join in. Okay. Um, Mark, when you get a chance, feel free to unmute. We'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Hey, man. Uh, thanks for having me here. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, I, I look forward to hearing about Texas's softness problem whenever that comes back. Yeah, he um, vanished. I, I mean, again, if you if the system or if your phone clack, it really sounded like something went out because he kind of faded out and then it just sort of he vanished uh, off of my side of, of how I see it. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't know if he was going to say I mean, because I'm hesitant to say that. I mean, before Texas kind of had that that. Uh, oh, gosh. And, and, you know, wouldn't it be funny if Ryan Day suddenly burst into the scene and wanted to get into that conversation? But, you know, um, <laughs> I, I think there was a little bit of that. But I mean, uh, historically, but I, I think Texas is at least proven that they because I mean, the, the Red River rivalry this year was was a hell of a game. I mean, it reminded me of, you know, it's one of those games where, you know, yeah, Texas lost. But if they went out and they win a rematch, which it seems like we're going to probably get a rematch, I don't think people will hold that as as, as strongly against them as, as other losses. I mean, it's almost like Alabama now, because Alabama seems to be waking up, and that loss to Texas doesn't look awful. Um, oh, you yeah. know, and if, if, te- if, if Alabama wins out at this rate, and part of it is just a, a statement on, on how weak the, uh, just overall how, not weak is the wrong word, just how there isn't a real clear-cut leader in the clubhouse right now in some of these conferences, that, you know, I think Texas now has a loss like that with Oklahoma because that's a, I mean, I hate to use a quality loss thing, but it's not like they had some off moments, but they were, they weren't terrible. Um, oh, yeah. And great. Team. Yeah. Two great teams for sure. Uh, I, I didn't mean to, I was really just, no, 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 no. And I, I should say, like, so is that what you wanted to bring up or do you want actually, to bring no. up something else? I just feel so like I'm a, I'm a Wyoming fan, actually. A couple things here. I was curious what you oh, think. Oh, yes, about. yes. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I remember your, your previous times you've been here now that you mentioned that you jogged my memory, but I've been wanting to hear from you. I was hoping to hear from you last week only because we were running up to obviously the big game with Fresno State. But now Wyoming has, I mean, it's because it's what Air Force next, isn't it? Yeah, it's oh Air my Force. Goodness. They're, and they're 5 and 0. Oh, it's at Air Force. Now, Air Force hasn't played anybody. Um, they're always dangerous, but I mean, they played kind of a weak, I mean, I don't mean to badmouth them, but uh, no, no, no. I agree. They they have a weak schedule, and they they've had it actually a couple of seasons in a row where Phil Steele and, and others would say like, oh yeah, they have a chance to go undefeated. It's like they're like Liberty this season, where Liberty season Liberty schedules one thirty three out of one thirty three, and I'm just peeking at the score, and they've now got a, a two score lead on Jacksonville State, so it looks like they'll go to six and zero. But you know, ultra weak. So that that has been Air Force's problem. I mean, just with the non conference schedule, part of it is also. Sometimes when the other service academies are having down years, so because they obviously they fill out the rest of their schedule with Navy and Army, 
Um, that that makes them look sometimes worse than it is. And and Middle Tennessee, I should just note, has now gone final. They they have defeated Louisiana Tech. But um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with Air Force. Like they seem strong, but we need this is going to be, I think, the the big test. Yeah. Uh, although, man, I'm kind of shocked that we beat Fresno. Uh, to to be honest, Fresno is just one of those teams that is just they're underrated, man. They have been so good so many times over the years, and just they never get the love they deserve. I think. Um, and they and they think they're tough this year. You got Tedford's a great coach. He's really got them going, going, going well. Um, I don't know. They're outperforming my expectations, and I'm pretty excited. But uh, yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. This has been one of the greatest Mountain West seasons. I think just because there are three strong teams with Fresno State, Air Force, and um, and obviously Wyoming. And Wyoming, I think, arguably is the the most surprising of the of those three. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Yeah, because again, and I think to, to to be fair, Air Force didn't. No one expected San Diego State to be as bad as they are right now. I mean, we thought <laughs> and, they were trending down, yeah. But now it's like we're like, well, Air Force beat San Diego State. Who cares? And what that the used hell to happened not to Boise, man? They used to be so dangerous, and now I mean, they watch them beat Wyoming, okay, but they're just they're not the Boise they used to be. They're just not. They're not, but they're, they're there's something eerie about Boise. They're still technically undefeated in the Mountain West, so. I feel like they're be be careful. We might end up. Oh, dude, if, they, if have, you're, they 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 have dominated us the whole time they've been in the Mountain West. I, I don't. I do not look past Boise, but it does feel like they've lost a step. They have. They're they're certainly not as terrifying as they were before, in the sense that they could easily clock a, a P five team and then go through and and wreak havoc in in the Mountain West or even back in the WAC days. Um, you know, I. I'm looking forward to this game with Air Force in Wyoming. It's going to be it's going to be on CBS uh, Sports Network, so hopefully folks can find it. Um, I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing how this is. Uh, Craig Ball, man, that's all I got to say. I mean, for those again, for those who who haven't really kept up with Wyoming, and you're like, oh, they have a loss. Their only loss is to Texas, and they gave Texas a reasonable game in Austin. So it wasn't like you know. Yeah, they they opened the season by upsetting Texas Tech, and even then, I'm like, well, did they get lucky because it was Laramie? But <laughs> since then, that App State game, which had a wild ending, because we were just talking about that at the beginning of this show, App State. Every App State game is is exciting, and their fans every time kind of love and hate it if you talk to them. Because if they win, they win close. If they, I mean, right now I'm looking, Coastal Carolina is up 24-17. That none of that is safe. Who knows who's going to win that game? No, just App State predict. just scored. Oh, did they? This is oh, these two teams are honestly two of the most exciting teams in college football. They're two little guys, but man, they are tough. They're two teams you do not want to play. Yeah, absolutely. So, but just going back to Wyoming, this has been Wyoming's definitely like I, I love Wyoming right now. They're like my feel good story of the season, or one of them, and especially in G five. I kind of imagine, I, I dare imagine, because if they went out, I think they're they would arguably be. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but they would be a contender to to get into year six, which would be hilarious. Which wouldn't be hilarious. It would just be amazing because it would, before the season, I don't think anyone had them in front. And and right now, I mean, we're gonna get we're actually gonna get a bit of a a nice game in the American to get a leader in that clubhouse because Memphis, which only has a loss to Mizzou in a close game, and Tulane, which lost to Ole Miss, they're playing on Friday, by the way. So for those of you out there who like your want to watch college football on a Friday, there's a that's probably the circle game. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Tulane at Memphis. It's going to be 
the leader of that's going to be the leader of the American Conference and their contender for that New Year's Six spot. Then if you get into the evening, it's like I think Fresno State's at Utah State, less interesting. But then I, I'm very curious to see, just wanted to say this as a side, since Colorado is coming off Pac-12 network probation and going to be on a real <laughs> channel, um, that 9 p.m. Stanford at Colorado game, by all records, Colorado should just destroy Stanford. But I'm curious to see if we suddenly find out a Friday night, 10 p.m., you know, ESPN game gets a ratings boost because of the, the Dion show. I'm, I'm curious to see if it carries there. It probably will, but I don't think we'll see some of those crazy ratings we saw in a Saturday game because, you know, Friday night. I think a lot of the people he attracts are probably also out doing stuff Friday night. Dude, um, no, it may not no, be easy. Nobody does hype like Dion, though, as a player, as a as, as an announcer, and now as a coach. Nobody does it like Dion. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I have to just, just go back to Wyoming. Craig Bull, man, is this this is like is this going to be because everyone I, I remember some Wyoming fans were running out of patience with him. And I was part of me was like, what what are you hoping happens? You know, I mean, it's it's a tough place to play. You know, I remember the I got a chance to talk to, to Josh Allen actually at Mountain West Media Days the two times they sent him there. And it was always exciting to see them play. But you always knew it was kind of. It's it's difficult, you know. It's not the same. It's not the same playing field for I think a program. But to see this, this is this is something else. This makes you think of the fact that he's the guy who got North Dakota State into that into the program, the the juggernaut that it is. Yeah, you know, Craig Bowl is a is a frustrating uh, head coach in some ways. I mean, he's the guy clearly um, can can recognize and develop talent. That's that's very clear. I mean, Josh Allen is just one example. Um, he's put more people in the NFL than, than any Wyoming coach previously. He clearly has a talent for that. He did it at Notre Dame or at, uh, North Dakota state. He's doing it at Wyoming. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, the running backs, I mean, running backs, wide receivers, um, offensive linemen really, and as the defensive guys too. I mean, he really diamonds in the rough. He's finding them, he's recruiting them and developing them. Um, no doubt about that. The way he plays, though, man, it just it's tough on on your cardiovascular health, man. I mean, he he will not he will not put a team away. You'll notice Wyoming didn't score a point in the second half, and that is that is of the Fresno game. We were up twenty four to nothing to whatever ten or whatever it was uh, at the half, and he just pulled in pulled in the dogs and just just played defense, and and that's what he does. And it is just it is tough to watch. And honestly, I think he's 50-50 at Wyoming. I think he's got a 500 record. It's, he's, he's, he's tough. It's, in, it's interesting because the media loves him. He's great for PR. He can clearly uh, recruit and develop. But, man, he's, he's just not winning the big games. You know, for the most part, he really hasn't. Yeah. It's, it's I don't know, it's tough. No, and you're right. He's he's exactly fifty fifty at Wyoming. He's fifty seven and fifty seven at this exact time. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and he's got he's not and he's probably he's got a slight losing record in conference play. It's thirty four and thirty eight. So, but at the same time, you know, in half his seasons, he's gone. I mean, over half the seasons prior to this, in five out of the last nine, he's got a Bulls, which is it's something. Think, yeah, yeah, it's something, right? I mean, because I. It was fascinating to see only because the history of, of coaching at Wyoming, I remember, was it Glenn? Um, Joe, I, I Joe Glenn was... was not great. He destroyed quarterbacks. Honestly, he wouldn't get rid of his horrible offensive coordinator. But you know what? Well, yeah, and that was he the thing. I thought there was the hope game. for him, and it just it just he didn't pan out. Because I remember when they were, yeah. when they hired him, I thought, oh, wow, they're bringing 
should be a win. winner from he, yeah he came from Mon- from Montana it should have been a massive win yeah and then he just didn't pan out and and obviously there's there's plenty of other coaches I mean I think was Joe Tiller the last truly successful coach yes it was Joe Tiller yeah yep. yeah well, that, and then I, I was remember in Dennis Erickson the Joe Tiller's time I'm I'm portraying my age there but that was just magical times <laughs> love it yeah. oh man. No, I'm looking forward to this game. I, I'm very curious to see if, how Air Force stacks up against Wyoming. And, and I think, the, again, the, the Mount West, the leader there has a very strong chance, if, especially if they can win out. No matter one loss, I think they have a good shot at going all the way and getting into that New Year's Six. I think that'll be exciting. I don't know which team it is. I don't know which bowl is hosting the, the, the G5 spot this year. Because some of the joke, someone joked like, "Oh man, Air Force! If they go, they're gonna have the best flyover of any bowl game." And I said, "Now you're now it's gonna end up being like the Superdome, isn't it? You know, so it's not gonna matter." I want to say Fiesta Bowl, but I'm not sure. Oh, that that would be perfect. That is way the hell down the road. I just yeah, it's way exactly exactly. If we can get past Air Force, I'll be happy. Yeah, well, awesome, man. Thanks for joining us, Mark. It's great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. All right, Ski Mask Smurfing, going to let you up here. We'd love to hear from you. This is RCFB Talk 161. My name is Bob Akhayeri. On Tuesday nights, we like to talk to you about whatever thoughts you have in college football. So if you'd like to join the conversation, just hit request, and I'll do my best to get you up here. Although, I have to admit, after about an hour, we'll probably I'm going to learn my lesson. I'm going to take a knee at about an hour and end the game um, and not try to keep it going for a little bit longer. Um, so let's see here. Ski Master Murphy, what's up, my man? Oh, yeah. I think. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Yeah, because my phone started acting weird once you brought me up. But yeah, I think we all need to talk about sort of like the giant elephant in the room that occurred this week, which I just happened to watch live, which was Georgia Tech versus Miami. And, yeah. and basically the whole fallout of like seeing that Mario Cristobal has done this multiple times and the fact that also if you go back and watch it, you can see his O-line coach come up to him and the offensive coordinator telling them to yes. deal the ball and they just flat out refuse. And it was just one of those things where it's like because I just finished watching Louisville beat down Notre Dame and getting them out of their getting them out of the ACC's way to making a, a run to get a team in the playoff and I was just sitting there. And it's just one of those things you just watch it and you're like okay, they're just going to run the ball out and you stop paying attention and you hear them run the ball again and you're like wait are they going to test fate? Let's see how this ends. And then it, everything that goes wrong, everything that could have went wrong by not kneeling went perfectly wrong. And then the quarterback just doing a magical throw and a scramble drill and his defense didn't hold up. And it was just one of those things where it's like, hey, you could have just nailed the ball. And it, it's just, it's almost like the whole Notre Dame putting 10, got 10 players in the field consistently yeah. with Marcus Freeman is now it's like a path of Chris Ball going back to like I think like 2017, 2018. And it's just absurd. You know, it reminded the game that, and this is one that that isn't as I think well known, and, and some folks remember this or who know their some of the trivial stories in college football. But there was a game, it was Kevin Steele's first game at Baylor in um 1999. And it, actually it was it was his first season, pardon me, first season at Baylor, because it was mid-September. And they go and they host UNLV. And instead of taking a knee, they decided they were, uh, I believe they were close to the goal line. They wanted to, uh, to punch it in. They were ahead 24-21 with 20 seconds left. UNLV had no timeouts. 
And instead, they decided to go for it. And exactly the worst thing that happened, there was a 100-yard fumble return for a touchdown. And UNLV won the game. And the problem is, 1999, for those of you who remember the 90s, as I do, um, not every game was televised. So luckily, in I think the last 10 years, a sideline video uh, emerged of this happening live. And that is, the, I think the only reason that that play isn't as known as well is because it simply was televised. Also, Baylor was, those were the awful Baylor days, you know. Um, uh, not that they haven't necessarily returned to it now with, uh, with some of their fans may feel. But yeah, this was spectacular only because Miami was, as you said, you know, they seem to be a contender. They seem to be ACC was freeing up. Louisville is, is I think, arguably the biggest surprise out there right now um, as an undefeated program. And then Miami just stubs its toe and, I mean, it, it took so much stress off of everyone. Every other coach who had kind of some bad decisions. You know, both USC and Arizona made some really kind of questionable decisions as that game went into triple overtime. You know, some people have said things about Jimbo Fisher being too conservative and Alabama made a few interesting clock decisions. I mean, there were there were several over the day. And then Mario Cristobal manages to outdo everyone and, and do an all-timer in the, I, I still can't believe it happened. I mean, it's been talked about relentlessly. I mean, I, I was reading someone doing some analysis on it, not on the play itself, because we've all heard it ad nauseum, but that it was, it's almost like the reverse Dion effect. Instead, you know, the, the joke with Dion is he's bringing in people, not the joke, but the effect of Dion is he brings people who aren't into college football and they're watching. Like, Mario Cristobal managed to do something so bad that NBA programs were talking about it. Like it was, he managed to transcend college football in the reverse Dion effect in, 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 in doing something so bad that everyone was like, why did you do it? Of course, you know, we'll see how they do the big game. This I'm excited. It took the luster off of the North Carolina game this weekend. I'm really still excited to see how Miami and North Carolina stack up against each other. You know, North Carolina is undefeated as well. I mean, the ACC is, you know, everyone was talking about the Pac-12 early on, but the ACC seems to be the the more interesting. I mean, seems to be a competitor in its own right. Um, I'm excited to see that game, but yeah, that oh, that that what can't be said about that? So much has been said about it, and and, and again, Mario Cristobal. And by the way, I want to go back that coach trying to tell him, hey, we should need it here. Uh, it is funny. I've only seen still shots of it, but again, I mean. There was some analysis there. I think it was Bruce Feldman who wrote a book about Ed Orgeron said one of the things that Orgeron, at least the reason he at least saw more success at LSU is when he flopped at Ole Miss, he was willing to look and say, like, I make mistakes. I have some tendencies. I'm going to bring people. And some of these coaches are really good. Bring have assistants who counter their tendencies when they get competitive to do bad decisions of certain kinds. And maybe this is hopefully something Cristobal learns from, and maybe they have someone who's willing to just kind of go up to him and say, I don't know, I just, I just finally got around to watching um, uh, Ted Lasso, and there's that thing where if somebody yells Oklahoma, they have to say the truth. Like, is he going to have a, 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 a sideline assistant who's going to just yell, Georgia Tech! And that's a signal where Mario Cristobal's brain goes, take a knee. Um, <laughs> we're going we're to get Pavlovian response from him to the point where maybe fans will start to learn to emulate that sound and, and opposing fans will yell at him, you know, Georgia Tech. And suddenly, you know, in the second quarter, first down, we're going to watch uh, Georgia Tech, pardon me, Miami take a knee or something. But um, yeah, that all you can hope if you're a Miami, I mean, Miami fans, I, you feel, 
I know people like to kind of like pile on Miami fans. I feel sympathy for Miami fans only because I went to the West Coast version of Miami. I'm, I'm an alumnus of the University of Southern California, so I know what it's like to be on a team where people have joy in watching your team fail in spectacular ways. And gosh knows, USC nearly did on Saturday. But man, I, you know, if you're Miami right now, you collect yourself and you just see you're still a contender in the ACC. And you just get away from that game as soon as possible. Wins will hopefully make it go away. John, I see you wanted to add something to there. And, and Ski Master Murphy, I know you wanted to add a, a follow-up on that too. Um, Ski Master, you're the one who asked the question. I'll let you go first, man. Oh, yeah. All I was going to say is you're right in that, you know, Miami sort of ruined it for the ACC, what it could possibly want if they start winning the rest of their games. Because that's going to be a pretty tough scar to try to get over with that being one of their losses to a team who's not ranked. And if they somehow end up in the conference championship game and they win it, that could possibly keep the keep the ACC out or possibly get in two teams. Because it looks like right now that give, as much as praise as we have for the Pac-12, all those teams have to play one another. So they might end up just cannibalizing one another out. And I think this Miami game could have ripples that – extend very far and a lot of SEC to get back in as well too. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that uh, just more just an open ended question. Um, you know, if if Miami's, you know, performance for the rest of the season, you know, is just average or below par or they essentially, you know, sort of collapse from this point forward, does is that is this a you know a moment where you know this essentially costs you your job as head coach? So I mean well, it's, yeah. it, it, it's a it's a this is a really I mean this is a potentially just momentum killer for a team in this situation. Well, I, I think on its own, it won't. I think it was embarrassing. I think certainly it's going to come up anytime Miami doesn't look good under Mario Cristobal. Hey, remember when he did, you know, remember the Georgia Tech game? But unless there's a complete collapse, like they, they do go to a losing season, or which I think is, on, I, would, I would doubt that. I think the team's got enough talent that they'll get to a bowl and, and you know, they'll kind of move on from there and make an improvement on last season. Um, I mean, I'm expecting that. But at the same time, kind of going back to what Ski Mass Murphy said, if, if they manage to win out, I mean, they might need, the ACC might need still some help to get into the playoff, but they would have some good wins. Uh, you know, they'd have to beat North Carolina. They'd have to beat... Florida State and Louisville, if Louisville is still looking as strong as they do. And of course, Clemson, which while Clemson isn't the Clemson of old, it's still not a not a cakewalk by any stretch. Um, so their season does get a little tougher as it keeps going on and, and they'll have opportunities to to demonstrate themselves. But I think kind of going back to what you said, John, I think it would take a complete implosion for the rest of the season um, for that to necessarily happen. You know, I just realized we had um, we just had a couple of questions that were also dropped in the replies, which you can do. And I always forget that's an option on, on uh, Twitter spaces. So uh, there's two of them. The older one um, by Andy, uh, American is goat, is the uh, handle there. The odds of G5 schools being more involved in realignments next round. So I, I'm not sure how much more. Well, strike that. There is some realignment coming only because something has to happen to the remaining Tupac teams, you know, uh, the two pa the, the remaining Pac-12 teams, Oregon State and Wazoo. So we're going to see some shifting around how that works. Is it going to be kind of an interesting merge with some of the Mountain West teams or just all together? Um, 
we're going to go because we're only getting one more team, it seems like, for the near future because of this new boost in the, the fee that's going to be required for FCS programs that John brought up. But, it, you know, we're going to have 134 teams. I don't know what's going to necessarily happen among the, the G5 because the G5 will realign a little bit, but I don't know if it's going to be anything too significant, especially not necessarily SMU buying their way into the ACC may be the last we see of that, um, at least for a little while. Um, because the Big Ten and the SEC aren't interested in, in adding necessarily any teams that aren't, you know, maybe the best of the ACC is what's left for them. The Big 12 also seems pretty happy where they are. Um, but the, so kind of going off that question, which was just slightly general and a little vague, that was my answer there. And I also saw, let's see, Uncle Dropsy. That's a fun username. Uh, I'm an admitted NCAA football casual. That's fine. We love people who just want to get learn more about football but with a generic question if you got time for it sorry reading this and i'm not reading it right way some programs are notorious for putting out many players in certain positions to the pros that's definitely true so which school is kicker you if any um or has fourth down analytics ruined development in that regard that's an interesting question what team is kicker university i don't know if you guys have thoughts of that i'd love to hear it or you know you can reply to him in uh the tweet replies but I also want to see, I see Ski Master Murphy, you had your hand up, and John, you had your hand up. But Ski Master Murphy, what's on your mind? Oh, I was going to make some more comments on the realignment. Oh, please, go ahead. Please question. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you don't but, have to. But have I, to just want, I just want to give my two cents on this kicker you. I would say, historically, I would have to go with Florida State with the Aguayo brothers, um, oh, yeah. Sebastian Janikowski, and like yeah, three other yeah. kickers in between. And I guess punter you, I mean, excluding – all of Aussie rules football, I'd have to say punter you might have to be either Oregon or LSU. But that's a I very love good that. We should just say it. The punter university is question. the country of Australia. We should just give punter yeah. university to the entire nation of Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my thoughts on current realignment with group of five teams, I think they may hold out for the meantime because unless he's changed his tune from when I read it a couple weeks ago, but the commissioner of the American athletic conference, he said, he's not going to vote to change the whole um, six plus six to a five plus seven for who gets into the 12 team playoffs, because he knows it's going to give the group of five teams a very good advantage. If one of them can at least make a run. And then I thought him saying that he was going to withhold was strange, but then I looked in and apparently they can't change it unless it's unanimous lead aside about all the commissioners and Notre Dame for some reason, as always. But I think group of five teams may hold off on moving until they see how well the 12-team playoffs shakes out for them with having two positions. To be, to be clear, I think he has, at least most recently, and this is like late September, um, Mike Oresco, the, the commissioner of the American, has said he is okay with the five plus seven. And I think part of it is everyone acknowledges the Pac-12 is going away. They just don't know what to do with that spot and there were two there were two schools of thought one was being pushed by the sec which was all 12 will just be uh at large teams but that seemed to die immediately only because the very thing that for those of you who remember from the very beginning of the bcs model the idea that can we get non-bcs team non-p5 teams into have any shot at a championship which kind of slowly led to the idea of a playoff first we got the expanded bcs and we got the playoff etc but that kind of that kind of tension started to appear. So it looks like Oresco's fine with the five plus seven. And for those who are less familiar with why that's important, 
Um, the original plan was going to be six plus six. What does that mean? It means the six top conference finishers. There's five big conferences, the P5, and then the top conference champion from one of the G5. So they would automatically have at least one team in this playoff and potentially one more because the other six would be at-large teams. With this reduction in conferences, they're going to do the idea is a five plus seven, acknowledging that there's now four power conferences left, the Big 12, uh, ACC, and of course the Big 10 and SEC. And then you'd have that fifth slot for the champion, the best champion of the remaining teams again. And then the, the rest of the seven would be at larges. So if a team manages to climb all the way up, you know, th they could be picked because it would still be a, a, a playoff committee selection, not necessarily um, anything to do with the, the other rankings, but John, I know you wanted to add something and uh, go right ahead. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, first of all, uh, for a, someone who's claiming to be a football casual, that's a very detailed question. Uh, regarding the kicker you. So, bravo to you for that. Um, I was going to make a note about a conference realignment. I think I think the big thing I, I've noticed is, you know, I guess the, the American has now to fill the SMU um, hole. Um, that's being left now that now they're going to the ACC. I'm kind of curious where they go. I mean, the options are kind of limited. I don't think you really can get anyone from Conference USA. I don't think they want anyone from Conference USA. Maybe... Minus Liberty, with all even with all the baggage that comes with it, I mean, maybe they go after an independent, maybe like a, you know, like an army, perhaps maybe, or you know, and you know, I hate to see it, but I could really see, really maybe see them going after a Sun Belt team, if possible. I'm just, uh, yeah, you know, Army has that. come up before because Army has over time started to look at that, and that would naturally put Army and Navy together. I know they've been talking about how that would be RV-Navy, the actual Army-Navy game would still be considered a non-conference game to preserve it and allow it to still be where it appears at the very, very end of the season um, is how I've heard that discussed. It's been a little while since I went into depth in that one, but I know Army seems to be one of the leaders in the bullpen for potentially backfilling them because Army, I think they had previously a kind of nothing notable to talk about membership in conference USA for a brief time, but the idea of them coming back and joining a conference, at least with Navy seems to have some attraction. Ski Master Smurphy, I know you wanted to add something. Yeah. I don't know why this just popped in my head while you guys were just talking more realignment, but, um, cause a few things, cause I think you mentioned Kennesaw state earlier. And sure I know like as, as drastic as realignment gets, Kennesaw state actually, had to absorb a whole nother university to make their play for moving up to FBS. Uh, I forgot what the school is called. Uh, I think it was like Southern Polytechnic State University. They absorbed yeah, they, that whole school. They've been doing like, a little bit of that. Too. They've been doing a little bit yeah. of that. I know Georgia State. Georgia State also, I know, at one point merged with another school. And I mean, Georgia kind of has slowly been yeah. um, kind of coalescing some of its programs. And so did actually Georgia Southern. I think they merged with. I forgot. It was in the Savannah. It wasn't Savannah State, but it was some other college in Savannah, like them and Georgia Southern merged too. So yeah. I think they've been doing a bit of that coalescing in in that in yeah. that state. Yeah, but what popped into my head that got me to that was like, um, I believe it was the Boise State athletic director. In order to like curb this realignment and like all the drastic measures everyone is going into to sort of like move into the money conferences. He, I believe it was a Boise State athletic director or maybe another school's AD, but he proposed that college football should just move to a promotion relegation system like European soccer 
just sort of everybody's not in a mad scramble to try to get the money and that your school's performance can just get you there, which I yeah. think is just it's a it's a lofty idea which could work in college, which we have the amount of things for it to work, but it would be obscene to see how it plays out. Yeah, it would be so hard to do because you know some school would get so furious they'd probably try and file a lawsuit to not be relegated. But you know, and, and also just the sheer amount of money. Can you imagine an SEC program that's having an off year suddenly having to drop to like I don't know what would it pair up with a Sun Belt or, or whatever you'd want to say, you know, and suddenly you have a hundred thousand seat stadium in the Sun Belt. Um, you know, honestly, uh, the uh, while I don't think it'll ever happen, the best model I've ever seen, and I'll I'll die on this hill because uh, again, you know, for years since at least uh, just by accident in 2014, I found out or 2013, I found out they put college football in Japan, and I learned all about it. They had they have about a hundred teams that play college football in Japan. They have the best promotion relegation model I've ever heard of. It is basically the conferences are vertically um, vertically designed. So each major conference, and there's two big ones, has a D1, D2, D3, D4. So you're just moving up and down in the same conference. And then on the top level, the D1, those best teams and go on to their playoff at the end of the season. But the best part about it is it's not automatic. The bottom two, and they, they only keep they cap the top conferences, uh, the top division at eight teams. The bottom two teams play in D one, play the top two teams in D two at the end of the season, and only if the D two team can beat the D one team do they trade places. Which, I mean, I've watched one of those games. They they don't put them for free on YouTube anymore, but I watched one of those games. You will, I mean, not a huge crowd, but the players look like furious or desperate or you know thrilled after that game ends when a team that was in the lower division manages to then beat can you imagine that if that happened in, in our version of college football can you imagine like at the end of the season hey by the way liberty you get to play you know uh georgia tech and if liberty beats you you guys are switching places you know <laughs> that would be oh that would be absolutely amazing or you know stanford versus you know, Air Force or something like that. Of course, with the playoff we have coming up, the 12 deep playoff, which is going to include more, I think there's going to be more desire to get into, you know, it, it would we turn into a problem, which we saw with the FCS um, playoff conflicting with the Celebration Bowl, where some of the teams in those two FCS HBCU conferences were not thrilled that they were required to play in the Celebration Bowl. And one of them, a couple of them left. Uh, part of the reason they left was arguably over that. I know um, North Carolina A&T was never really thrilled with that particular situation when they were having strong years. But um, well, yeah, I know some of the reasoning behind that. Having a haven't had attended HBC or like family and like knowing some of the reasons. Really, because in terms of like the way money works at FCS, all the schools participating and getting money from the Celebration Bowl game as a conference actually gets them more money than their team if their teams qualified for playoffs and went. Because surprisingly, unless you're like a South Dakota State and North Dakota State where you can basically where you're basically undefeated every season and can host every FCS playoff game. There's yeah, really it's a no money loser. There, there's no money to be made as a oh this game is madness. I'm sorry, I'm watching App State Coastal Carolina. It's a lot going on. Oh, that that's an App State game for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about that. They never have a normal game. Yeah. Never have a normal yeah. game. It's over. Yeah, my my dad went there. He was like, he even this during the FCS game, FCS days. There's nothing wrong about an App State game ever since he's known them to exist. <laughs> but 
but yeah, as far as, as, far as the money goes, is like because I know yeah, that's you're right. Um, that's why yeah, Celebration Bowl is out. a cash register for the HBCUs. Yeah. It is a, a major financial success. Yeah, they start they started putting together during the FAMU season when they moved up and then came back down. They saw like the amount of money that they can make by just having a bowl game would be a lot better than trying to make runs in the playoffs. Because if you can't be like an automatic homes, um, home field advantage the whole way through, because tickets all go to the NCAA. So you can only really make money off concessions. And if you're not the home team, you're just paying to ship your guys out to go play a game. So I know that's why the Celebration Bowl came about after, I think, the old one in the 90s and or 70s, like the um the Heritage Bowl. Yeah, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as much money involved back then, which is why they all jump ship to the FCS playoffs. But now it's like you're just losing money every time you try to play a playoff game if you're not the home team. Absolutely. Well, I am gonna. We've now crossed about the hour mark. I'm gonna slowly wrap this up because again, I'm, I've learned from Mario Cristobal. I know that you know eventually you just got to take a knee at the end of a, a game and not and not keep it going because at some point somebody will probably grab the ball and, and run the other way. Um, John, did you have a final thought? I just saw your hand up. Yeah, I just want to give a quick shout out. Um, pretty much a very much a Udio Homer statement right now, but we'll give a shout out to Jason Henderson, um, leading the country right now with uh, in tackles for the NCA uh, for a second year in a row. Uh, just broke the ODU all time career record for tackles. Um, he is only a junior, it's only halfway through the season, and uh, he is on pace to, um, for the Division One record as it stands right now. Um, just thought it'd be something really interesting to put out there. Uh, well, I definitely do. He's also top five in the uh, in, in the NCAA for uh, tackles for loss this season as well. Wow. So a big stud on the defense of Old Dominion. That's great to hear that. You know, and, and kind of just kind of looking at a couple of the other things. I just wanted to back up what I said earlier. Total viewing of college football is up across all networks by 12% this year and is up 28% over the last five years. So that's wonderful if you're a fan of the sport. The interest is growing. And it's a gradual interest. It's not just one big spike. And it certainly keeps getting more interested, interesting with, with so many factors that are going in here. A couple of, I, there, I think I've hit all the major stories I wanted to do. There's so much that's to be talked about. But, you know, let's save it for next Tuesday. My name is Bob Akairi. This was RCFB Talk 161. It's Tuesday night when we like to talk to you. As always, thank you all for joining us. Always enjoy having you listen. Always enjoy hearing your thoughts. I hope you all have a great night now. I'm going to hang up. And listen.